whenever people ask me about Indian food, everybody's like, oh, curry. No, it is so much beyond that. It's so beyond the 895 all-you-can-eat buffet. It's beautiful. It's seasonal. And each and every region has a distinct cuisine. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Oh, I'm so excited. Today, we are talking about the power that food has to transport us across the globe with chopped judge and entrepreneur, Manit Chohan. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about something I've been working on. And listen, I am just thrilled to share it with you. So every single day of our lives, we are hit over and over with the message that we need more more money, more friends, a bigger house, a fancier job title, more of everything. Because if we have more in our lives, then we will matter more or something. But when you think about it, the idea that you have to be more at all, it's just kind of this crippling idea in the first place. And it doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't make me feel better. It makes my heart start beating faster. makes my eyes roll back in my head or my shoulders come up to my ears. More is tiring. More is tiring and I'm tired. So I wonder what it would feel like to live with less, less stuff, less spending, less stress. I wonder how you'd feel if you made more room for the best things that life has to offer, the stuff that we really care about, joy, generosity, connection, freedom. So 10 years ago, my family started an experiment that we called seven, where we dialed it back on seven areas of our lives, like food and clothes and spending and media stuff and waste and stress. And let me tell you, it was life-changing and it still is. Seven shifted the way that we operated in the past decade. And it's done the same for tens of thousands of readers who did this experiment right along with us. And now here's the exciting part. I'm bringing you a new updated revised edition of Seven and it's now called Simple and Free. Ah, Simple and Free. Doesn't that sound nice? Isn't that what we're craving right now? I want to invite you into this story that honestly changed me forever. I've added a bunch of new thoughts and new research throughout the book about how remarkably changed we have been since this originally took place 10 years ago. And please believe me, this is not a template. It's not a rule book. It's not another something that's going to make you feel guilty. That I promise you. It's freedom. I am inviting you to explore what your life might look like when you start to shift your thinking from more, more, more to less. Because once you let go of all that stuff that we were never meant to carry around, we discover we have room for peace and freedom. I just can't wait for you to read Simple and Free. I'm so happy to share that you can get it right now, wherever you buy books. So head on over to jenhatmaker.com slash simple and free and grab your copy today. Can't wait to talk to you about it. All right, let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome, 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 welcome to the show. We are in the middle of a series that I'm just, no big shock, in love with. Been wanting to do this one for a while. This is a series that we've done once before. It's in, it's called For the Love of Food. So, ha, big surprise. I want to talk about food again. I think I was really hungry for a series that was fun and nourishing, literally, and interesting, this idea of food again, and gathering again, and cooking, and that's just where my head was, and it has been the most 
fun. It's talking to these incredible food people. So I'm thinking about you, listener. I know each and every one of us has a different relationship with food and a million things affect that. Our family, where we grew up, our preferences, but one through line that has affected all of our food point of view is culture. Culture informs so much of the way we view food because it's the first lens we use to view, well, really everything. So our culture consists of a handful of things where we are location-wise, where we came from, who we came from, the people who handed down the recipes that we love or hate. Culture gave us certain foods that were plentiful where we happened to grow up or determined that maybe there was an ingredient that we weren't likely to find in our region or weren't, it wasn't likely to be bought by the people that lived by us. And so we didn't see it on grocery store shelves until we moved or became an adult. So today I am talking to someone who's moved through several different food cultures, which we're going to talk about throughout her really spectacular career. And so ultimately she has constructed a point of view that's uniquely her own using really all of it. You guys, I'm so delighted to tell you that on the show today is chef Manit Chohan. You probably know Manit best as just a staple judge on Chopped on the Food Network and then also Worst Cooks in America. Not only is she filling her time on TV like that, but she's telling stories through food, both on and off the plate. Manit's a James Beard award-winning chef. She's the owner of four delicious restaurants in Nashville, four. She just released a brand new cookbook called Chot. We're going to talk about that because it's a really interesting, interesting like way to both share recipes and tell a story through India, which is where she grew up. And so that process is so fantastic. And she's just doing it all, you guys. Lenite is doing it all. And she's doing it well. And she's doing it with joy. She really is a delight to watch and to learn from and to listen to and to borrow recipes from. And I love everything about her. I've been a fan of hers for years. Years and years and years and years, I have been watching Manit and loving her as a chef, as a judge, and really ultimately as a person. So with that, here is my absolutely charming conversation with the darling and wonderful Manit Chohan. All right, Manit. Yay. Yay me. Lucky me. Welcome to the For the Love podcast. I'm so very happy to be looking at your face. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that that we are connecting and we're going to have this amazing conversation. Listen, you have been in my living room on my TV for so many hours. Like I just can't even count it. I'm having this strange sensation of knowing you. Like we're just picking right up where we once left off and now we're friends. (laughs) So I want to just dive right into it with you. I have so many questions. I'm so fascinated and curious about your life. Let's start here. Let's talk about food. We all love it. We all need it. We're all cooking it. We're all eating it. Let's go way back for you. What is the first time that you can just remember like your earliest memory of when you ate something and your brain just lit up with joy and possibility? Oh my God. I mean, my love affair with food has been, I think, pretty much since the time I was born. I don't think that there is a moment per se that I realize my love for food. But the more I think about it, it's just an amalgamation of all of these different experiences. And it is so funny because my sister and I, we at times have conversations about, you know, 
events that we both attended, you know, be it, you know, some of our uncle or aunt's weddings or, you know, some big family events. And when we recollect those memories, she talks about what the entire thing was about, you know, who, who was doing what. I only remember it through food. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, my uncle's and aunt's wedding. I remember the, you know, mince goat and beef. And she's like, what? And I must have been like five or six. So I, I think it's just a, it's a combination of just realizing that food is so nourishing. And also the fact that it is such a great connector. I mean, we are connecting over food. And I think that is the most priceless thing about food. I do too. I'd love to know a little bit more about your growing up years. I'd love to know who was in your family. I would love to know if you were, were you raised by the cooking moms and grandmas and aunts? Did you find this on your own? Who made the biggest impression on you? I'd love to hear that. And let's get into then later how that parlayed into a whole life you've built as a grown up who made food a living. Fantastic. So let's let's recap 43 years in 4.3 seconds, right? <laughs> let's do it. So, I mean, I grew up in a really small town in India. And the fun part about growing up in this town was that I grew up in a community where there were people from different states in India. And the fun part about these different states is that each and every state has a very distinct cuisine of its own. So I grew up predominantly in a Northern Indian household. So the food that we ate was, you know, from that area. But our neighbors were from Southern India or from Eastern India. And really early on, what I would do is I would, I would finish dinner at home and then go over to my neighbor's houses and tell them that my parents hadn't fed me, so can I eat with you? And it was incredible because I would not only, like I would be exposed to ingredients that I had never seen. But to me, the dining table was fascinating, but it was the kitchen which was more fascinating because I would just go and with the aunties, just sit right next to them or help them ask them questions. So I think that's basically what it was. And it was interesting because at that time, everybody was studying to be a doctor or an engineer in India at that time. And the reason being that that was a proven career path for success. And over here, I'm like, I want to be a chef. And I was fairly blessed that, you know, my parents were very encouraging about it. They're like, do what you want, be the best at it. And that's what I did. I applied. I did my undergrad in India and a welcome group graduate school of hotel administration. Pretty much applied to the three top institutes, got into all of them, went to the one which was the best. And then in my in my last year in India, I asked one of my chef instructors, which was the best culinary institute uh, you know, in the world to go to. And without even batting an eyelid, he said the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. So I applied and I came here in 98. And yeah, I've been here ever since. I love that you had the clear point of view and even the courage to chart your own path which I cannot imagine that a ton of your peers at the time in India were saying, let's head to the kitchen. Let's make a job out of it. That had to be divergent. And I love that you knew enough to know this is my thing. This is my right path. I wonder if before we can jump over to America, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit because you worked your way around some of the finest hotels in India. I'd like to hear about your experience there. And then of course, your transition over to the United States I'm curious what the biggest differences you found between Indian and U.S. kitchens were, if at all. Maybe there was a lot the same. Maybe there was some different. 
it was interesting when I was, you know, working and doing my externship, etc. in all the kitchens in India. I think the one thing which really stood out was the fact that there weren't many women or girls in the kitchen. I remember my first job right out of college was in this, like, you know, at that time, fine dining was only in these five-star hotels. And I was working in one of the hotel and I was the only female in a kitchen staff of around 70 to 80 men. And it was interesting because you had to kind of, everybody's like, oh, so you are learning how to cook so that you can learn how to you know, make good food for your husband. I'm like, no, this is my career because they weren't taking me seriously. It was really interesting because it just kept that fire lit that, okay, I've got to keep on, you know, working harder and harder. And it made me realize that, yes, I have to work hard, but I have to work a little bit harder right? For them to take me seriously. So I think that's pretty much what it was. And when I came over here, because I had gone through that in India, right? Everything seemed like a breeze, right? Oh, yeah. You're like, oh, right. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, fine. Oh, my God. They are two women in the kitchen of 70. This is progress. It was incredible. It was, it was really good. Oh, my goodness. So it's interesting to watch your the arc of your career. You've done so much. Obviously, you're a James Beard award-winning chef. It's so special. That's just such rare air. You have several successful restaurants in Nashville, which I want to talk about in a minute. And now, of course, you've acted on Judge as on several cooking shows. And now also you're a published author. It's a lot. It is a lot. And so I would love to hear you talk about how you transitioned from the kitchen to the judge's table. Did you see that coming? Was that out of left field for you? I'd love to know how that happened. I mean, there's a very different ethos around being in the kitchen, running the restaurant, being at the table, judging a show. I mean, TV, I just want to hear about this. I want to hear where you thrive, what's your favorite part of what you do, what's been surprising. I literally just asked you 50 questions. Just pick one. (laughs) Just pick whatever you want out of that whole interesting transition. So it's really interesting. I was in Chicago and in Chicago, you know, nowadays with chefs, you kind of are required to be a part of the PR also, right? So morning shows, we I used to go, I used to do demos and stuff. And then when I moved to New York, our PR company, they got me on Iron Chef, right? And like when I was at CIA, this was the the original Iron Chefs. Like you, oh totally. You, like we used to be addicted, and at, at CIA, I'm like oh my god, one day I need to be competing in in the kitchen over there. And I got to compete against Chef Morimoto. Yeah, well, master. Of course, exactly, and that's why I say that I came a respectable second among two people. Uh, but it was, <laughs> totally, yeah, it, it sounds better than I lost, but it was incredible because. Thanks to that, I got invited to compete on the next Iron Chef. I think this was the third season. And I did very well. I I went along fairly far into the entire competition. And from there, Chopped had just started. So they invited me to be a, a guest judge. And... They liked what I did. So the next season, they invited me to be a permanent judge. This was around 12 years back. So I've been doing it for 12. And then it's been interesting because of, by the virtue of being on the judges table, I get invited for other shows also. But also the fact is that I love competing. 
So whenever I'm asked to compete, though, you know, my stomach is in knots and I'm like, why am I doing this? But as soon as the time starts, I am like, this is it. Like, it's the chaos. Yeah. But I think that that and, you know, working in a restaurant, it's it's a very symbiotic relationship. It goes hand in hand because of what I do in the restaurant every day. That's what gives me the knowledge to go and talk with authority on, you know, when people are presenting their dishes in front of me. But also because I am like working at the restaurant all the time, it also gives me the empathy of not to tear down a dish, right? Like to me, one of my biggest things is that if I give a critique, I give a reason as to what the critique is, why it is, and how, I mean, they could have done it differently or improved it. But let's face it, I mean, chopped is 30 minutes of chaos. It is four ingredients, which at first glance makes no sense. I have competed on it. It's really interesting. And I think the reason that why it seems like there are so many different hats and stuff, it's because, I mean, it's the incredible support that I have. Like nobody can do this by themselves, right? My husband, Vivek Diora, he and I, we are business partners also. I mean, yeah, talk about being crazy. So, you know, so we're, we're business partners and the support that I get is incredible. Like there are times where like I'm competing. I recently competed on the tournament of champions and literally before each and every competition, I'm like, can I do it? And he's like, totally, of course you can do it. Like, so you need that support system. You need somebody to have faith in you, to believe in you. And then you can believe in yourself. Like, you know, even with the kids, it's, it's everything. It's the incredible team over here that lets me, you know, that gives me the luxury to travel and do this. Or like, even for the cookbook, like we went to India for seven days, you know, we, it just, it was incredible. So I always say that I am the loudest, so I get the most amount of oxygen, but it is the people around me who make it possible for me to look good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that you enjoy both the energy of competition and the energy of being a good judge. And you are a good judge. I think I've seen all the episodes of Chopped ever, but I love the way that you protect their dignity. Thank you. And it's so kind, but also so useful. Your feedback is so good. What's the craziest thing that ever happened when you were on a judging Chopped? Like that you were freaking out privately or maybe even in front of the camera the weirdest, whatever it is, somebody freaked out or somebody gave you the worst thing you've ever eaten, or there was some kitchen catastrophe. Recently, we had one of the contestants who just like froze. Oh no. Froze. I would die. Yeah. It was really incredible. And I was like, and I offered, I went to the producer. I'm like, do you want me to talk to them? I can, you know, talk them off. They were like, don't worry. And then there was a whole team. And I mean, we had to stop production for a couple of hours for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's what it is. I mean, in terms of cooking, again, as I say that, I tell everybody who's on Chopped, winning or losing Chopped is not a mark of you being a great chef or a bad chef, right? Right. It is a mark of how good a competitor you are. Because you really do make, like I have made stupid mistakes. The first time I was on Chopped, it's so easy to see Chopped when you're sitting on a couch and you're like, oh, 
this is what I would have done, right? But then when you're right over there, you're running like I was like, I had two minutes left and I'm like, I'm going to be making shots for the judges, right? And, oh, sure. And the dish was incredible, but the shots were awful and I got chopped, right? And I'm like, why did I do that? We as chefs think that we can do a lot more like in our mind than we actually can. So I always tell people, keep it simple, keep it real. And just show off your skills, not try to do like, don't cook your food. Don't cook like, oh, that's Manit who is on the judges table. Great. I'll make a curry for her. Right. Why? Right. Do when I know how do. to make the best curry, why would you do that? <laughs> totally. right? So impress me with what your repertoire is. And I think that's, that's very important. Oh my goodness. It's so exciting to watch. I am under no delusions. I've said a hundred times, if I was in the chop kitchen as a competitor, you know what? I'd be the person that froze. I would just be like, I, I don't, I don't, what, what's an onion? I, I would just break out. I have doubts about it. There's just this competitive instinct that you kind of have to have this quick on your feet, which obviously I can see what you're saying. You learn that also in the kitchen, Yes. in a restaurant kitchen. It's so fast. It's so chaotic. Saturday night is your best training ground. It is crazy. It's chaos. I mean, it's like, you know, a video game, right? Like, you know, the tickets don't stop coming. There is something which goes wrong on the line. One of the servers puts the orders wrong. Somebody doesn't like something. I mean, it is just like, and you've got to just make sure that none of the eggs fall. To me, that's one of the most exciting evenings in the kitchen. So yeah, that's, I guess that's my personality. You're meant for this. <laughs> All the chefs in my life, my, my sister's a chef and I have so many chef friends. They are just these adrenaline junkies like you just described. And for the rest of us would we'll just put us right under, like six feet under. That's it. I quit. I can't do this. Everybody's crazy. It's some sort of really exciting thrill. It is. Sisters, we have pent up energy to expend, and it might as well be on getting our finances and investing in order. You guys know that my newly independent Enneagram 3-ness is in hyperdrive. There is nothing acceptable aside from total and utter competence in this category. I'm learning this right now. Your financial future can be in your hands too, and it should be. And here's why, and here's how. Public.com. So you guys, through my own financial education journey over this last year, which I've talked about a ton online, I've learned about incredible resources that are accessible to anyone, resources that make finances understandable, empowering, effective, and even fun. I'm not joking, fun. And public.com is one of them. It's basically an investing social network where you buy stocks for any amount of money, as little as $1 for fractional stocks. But what I love most about public.com is they have created this new, more inclusive culture for investing. The public.com community is 40% women and 45% people of color. Like, I love this. This is not the alpha male stock market scene. It takes out that sort of fear and disempowerment factor because you're never investing alone. Public.com makes it easy to collaborate and build your confidence as an investor by connecting you with other users, friends, other members, notable investors, so you can learn new things together and see how they're investing. I set up my account so quickly and was able to easily personalize how I wanted to invest with brands I already love or companies doing work that I feel passionate about. The app is 
free hello to use. And there are no account minimums to get started. So take charge of your investments today and head over to public.com slash gin to follow me and see what I'm investing in. We can be finance friends, you guys. Remember, you can start investing today with as little, literally as $1. You even get a free slice of stock when you join. So just go to public.com slash gin to download the public.com app. This is valid for U.S. residents 18 and older subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures, not investment advice. Here's a bright idea. Your bank account should work with you, not against you. After all, you earned your money and you deserve to keep it. And now that's easier than ever, thanks to Chime. Chime is an award-winning app and debit card with no hidden fees or monthly minimums. And Chime has perks for days. They offer fee-free overdraft on up to $100 in debit purchases with SpotMe. It's like overdraft protection, but better. And Chime lets you get your paycheck, benefits, stimulus check, and tax return up to two days earlier with direct deposit. Plus, you can turn on alerts to let you know when your card is used and instantly block your card if something seems fishy. Join the millions on Chime. Sign up takes two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Apply now at chime.com slash for the love. That's chime.com slash for the love. Chime is a financial technology company. Banking services provided by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank North America, members FDIC. Eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Overdraft only applies to debit card purchases. Limits start at $20 and may be increased up to $100 by Chime. Early direct deposits depends on the payer. Out-of-network cash withdrawal fees apply. Third-party and cash deposit fees may apply. Go to chime.com slash for the love for details. you brought your craft to Nashville, which is really interesting to me. What made you choose that city, which is such a fantastic place to live and to work, but you could have gone to some of the big, you know, cosmopolitan cities. What has it been like from a business perspective? And then also from raising your family there, because you got a whole crew with you. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. We asked the same question. We, our chopped had just taken off and we were getting calls from, you know, the obvious big cities, LA and San Francisco and Seattle and Chicago and New York. And we were living in New York at that time. So we, we thought that we had already arrived at the food mecca of the world, right? When we get a phone call that, would you like to open a place in Nashville? And both Vivek and I, we looked at each other. We were like, who the beep goes to Nashville? Because we had never been here, but we are the kind of people who always explore each and every opportunity that comes our way, no matter how small it is or no matter how obscure it sounds, right? So we are like, let's go and let's check out the city. And to say that it was love at first landing, you know, is an understatement. It definitely was. Like, we literally loved the vibe of the city, both Vivek and I from India, we are from smaller towns. So it just felt like, you know, coming home. But the plan was that we will we'll open the restaurant and then we'll commute because Vivek had restaurants in New York. Well, it is the South. The six-month project took around a year and a half. 
Along the way, we found out we were expecting baby number two. So we were like, okay, we will open the restaurant in November. On November 18th, we'll go back. You know, sometime baby was due in March. Great. Fantastic. So the day we opened the restaurant, November 18, 2014, our son decided to be born three months early. So we were not there for the yeah. We were not there for the opening of the restaurant. Our son, yeah, he was a twenty-six weeker. Was you for three months, and I think both Vivek and I, we looked at each other. We are like, if he's so adamant in being a Nashvilleian, who are we to stop it? So we went to New York. Made his wishes known. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we went to New York, racked up our house over there, moved over here, and then decided that we'll make the best of this move. So in now it's going to be six years, but in four years we had four restaurants, you know, three breweries. And what is incredible about Nashville is that it's got the heart of a small town, it does. but the soul of, a, of an internationally large hub, which makes it incredible because there are people from all over the world who live over here. And when we came here, we saw that there was nothing like what we had in mind in terms of Nashville, you know, in terms of Chohan Ale and Masala House. And the other thing also, which is the the true fact of the matter is that celebrity goes a longer way over here than it goes in New York. In New York, everybody is a celebrity. In LA, everybody. Everybody's a celebrity. So over here, it, it, it you, you can- It's got a little more cachet. You can stretch it. Yeah, yeah. you can stretch it a little, a little more, but it's been incredible. We we love it. We love, you know, we love raising our kids over here. There is this amazing amount of, for the lack of a better word, the etiquette, these etiquettes and manners which are instilled in all the people over here. And that's how we grew up and we love our kids. Like, you know, when people come over here, ma'am, sir, and anybody who comes from New York, they're very tickled with it. They, they think it's very funny. And we are like, no, that's how you're going to refer to them. It's Mr. and it's Miss and it's ma'am and it's sir. And it's fine with us. Like, you know, if people find that old fashioned, that is completely fine with us. Manners and etiquettes never go out of fashion. I love that you were able to latch on to that sort of bit of Southern culture, which is tried and true. I mean, that is a locked and loaded perspective. You are not going to find, you'll never miss a ma'am or sir in the South, but it is funny to me to think about how you experienced, at least initially at this point, it's probably just white noise, but how you kind of experienced that country culture in Nashville, which is it's just its own thing. I mean, it it doesn't really have a comparative. It's its own weird brand of, of music, celebrity culture. I mean, did you think it absurd? Did you find it hilarious? I mean, I can, that's way off the beaten path from what you had experienced in your big cities. It, it was really interesting because I think the most interesting part was that when we came over here, we really were not into like country music, right? Sure. Uh, and, I would and think was, you were. Yeah. I mean, it's like even now, give us Bollywood any day, right? Sure. <laughs> the interesting part was, you know, that I would be in the kitchen and suddenly one of the servers would come in and they're like, oh my God, you know who's sitting on table so-and-so? And I'm like, no. And, uh-huh, you really and, don't. Yeah. And it was incredible. Like Kelly Clarkson once came to the restaurant and we were talking about kids and poopy diapers. Like it was just like, it was so real. And that's what we 
love about Nashville is it's real. It's like everybody is who they are. Like in New York, before anybody would come, we would we would get calls. We would be like red carpet out and roll it. And like this just reminds us that in the end of the day, everybody is is human. And Absolutely. the connection is human. And that's what we love. I mean, and to us, I think what really, really, I think the moment that we became people from Tennessee was when we were going through this entire, when our, when our son was in the NICU. It's it's very, for a parent, it's, it's an emotional moment. And both Vivek and I, we are very A-type personalities. Like we are used to being in control of everything. And this was one thing we were not in control of at all. And that feeling of helplessness is, it's very frustrating because you want to do something and you can't do anything. The way the entire town just hugged us was, we were like, okay. And they're like, anything you need, we are here. And that just, that was it. I love to hear that because you were also brand new and that does not stop a Southerner from just swooping in with a casserole. I mean, they're just, that is a way of life. It was crazy. We were living in a hotel with a three-year-old and it was just, yeah, but that's it. What doesn't break you just makes you stronger. That's what it is. It does. I want to talk about your beautiful book ah, thank that you. came out last year. I'd like for my listeners to know a little bit more about it. Can you talk well, about everything, about why you wanted to write it, what your point of view was, and then how you find the, found the writing process. I'm a writer, so that always is always interesting to me. But also, I'm swapping over right now and writing a cookbook, and I typically write nonfiction. So we've swapped, and that's a completely different way to write. And so I would like to hear just all of it. Like, this is what I wanted to set out. This is what I wanted my readers to walk away with. And then this is what I actually thought it was like to write that book. So the idea for this book came up almost nine years ago, oh, wow. right yeah. around the time that my daughter was born. And I connected with, uh, you know, my co-author, Jody Eddy, and we've become great friends. She was the editor of Art Culinary at that time, and she had come for a shoot. And we just started, like, you know, she came home, we were sitting and we were talking. And she just asked me, she said, like, if you ever had to write a book, what would your idea be? And one of my fondest memories of, you know, growing up is as kids, during winter holidays, and summer holidays, we would take trains, right? And the trains are unlike the trains over here. The windows are open, the doors are open. It stops at each and every small train station. And the local vendors from that city come and sell their wares. So either it is, you know, the handicrafts or food, etc. These are journeys which would take three days, three nights, right? And, you know, as, as I was getting older, I started looking forward to each and every trip based on, oh, my God, at this station, I'm going to eat this. And at this station, totally. I'm going to eat that. And at that time, it was just a matter of like, you know, just uh, like I love food. So it was just like it's such a you know pleasure getting, you know, all of these dishes. But later on, I realized that it was a amazing way for me to actually experience the diversity of Indian cuisine, you know, through just, just in three days, right? Yeah. And that is it. Like whenever people ask me about Indian food, you know, everybody's like, oh, curry. And I'm like, no, it is so much beyond that. It's so beyond the 8.95 all-you-can-eat buffet. It's beautiful. It's seasonal. And each and every region has a distinct cuisine. So I know that if I spend my entire life trying to talk or even delve into Indian food, I wouldn't even scratch the surface because, you know, there are so many nuances and then micro nuances to, you know, all the cuisine 
campaigns based on regions and then cities and then villages. So what we did was we decided that we're going to tackle it by writing this book. It's about train journeys. It's about the vendors. It's about the street vendors who make the food so incredible and who made all of these journeys so delicious. So that's what it was. We came up with the idea. It started off so vast. Incredible editor, uh, Raquel. She is just amazing. She helped us hone it down. She's like, this is how you do it. This is how we break it down. Because literally what ended up in the book is probably one fourth of all the everything that we collected, right? To me, it's very easy to talk. I'm not much of a writer because it requires patience and I cannot be still. So Jodi and I, we, we collaborated and it was amazing. Like we flew down to India with our photographer because I wanted the photographs to capture the beauty of India, the chaos of India, the color of India. And that's what we did. We just, we, it was ambitious. We did seven cities in six days. And it just was incredible. It was just like amazing. And I'm like really proud of it. And of course, like when it was, I mean, you know, when you're releasing the book, the first few days, you're like, this is like sending your kid, you know, out in the world and it will people is. love it? Will people not love it? How are we going to deal with that? So I think that was, that was incredible. It's so true. It's a very vulnerable thing to present to the world, especially when it's so precious to you. It's so near and dear. That's your place that's your story. And what's the response been like? Has that been wonderful to receive like this overwhelming response from delighted readers who either deeply identify or are learning something new that they find fascinating? It was really interesting. What I was very bummed out about was that it was coming during a pandemic year because our entire idea for, you know, the book tour, I mean, the last book that I wrote, we got a tour bus and we did 10,000 miles in the tour bus in 30 days, right? So our our plan was that we'll travel the country, we'll travel, you know, we, we were even planning to go to England. I had, you know, a couple of friends over there and we were going to do these chart parties because that's what it is. So we're like, okay, we'll do what we've got to do. But the incredible part is that because this had such an incredible travel component to it, that people who couldn't travel, who've been feeling like, you know, going stir crazy, it really resonated with all of them. They're like, okay, we can sit over here and we can travel to India through this book. So it it had its, you know, upsides. And then we always say that once we can start traveling, we're going to do book tour number two, where, where we can do all of these, you know, start parties and stuff. But it was incredible. I mean, we got uh, this, you know, one of my, my favorite articles ever has been this New York Times chart article, which had like, you know, all four of us, because that's how, you know, we entertain. And it was incredible like to be on the cover of the you know the food section of the New York Times and then a one whole page so big deal it's it's been received very well in terms of like the publishers are excited at at how it's doing I am very happy when people are cooking from it and then they're reaching out totally so yeah it's it's a great experience back in the day things were built to last. If our grandparents bought a radio, that thing was going to last through a zombie apocalypse, that's for sure. Today, we're lucky if we can get a couple of months out of our phones before the battery starts to fade, right? Things are so replaceable anymore, but your clothes don't have to be. That's what American Giant believes, and with their passion for 
long-lasting and timeless clothing. They've created a hoodie that Slate Magazine says is the greatest hoodie ever made. I have it. It's the classic full zip hoodie. And I will tell you, it should be a part of your spring wardrobe because Slate is right. It's the best hoodie I've ever owned. Listen, American Giant obsessed over every single detail of this hoodie. They even brought in a former Apple designer during the design process and it shows. This thing is top-notch quality. It's 100% American made from the cotton to the zippers with this heavyweight cotton fleece that's made from locally grown cotton. And it is so soft, you guys. When you feel it, you'll get it. Ever since I got my hoodie, it hardly ever leaves my body. It is my uniform. It's to wear inside or if I'm heading out the door. It has the best fit because it's got a slim cut, but it's also roomy at the same time. I don't know how to describe it. It's the perfect light layer for spring. It's really the perfect hoodie, period. You can get your own classic full zip hoodie at American-Giant.com today. And if you use the promo code for the love, you get 15% off your first order. So that's 15% off when you use the code for the love at American-Giant.com. Okay, back to our show. I do want to talk about the pandemic because... Obviously, I mean, it's been catastrophic for so many industries, but especially the restaurant industry, just loss upon loss. I'm curious what the past year has been like for you, for your restaurants, for your restaurant staff, how I know that you did, how how did you pivot and how did that work? And then finally, tell us a little bit about, is there anything unique or special that we could be doing for our local restaurants, everybody listening? that we love? What, what do the restaurant people need right now? I always say that I think we were on the front lines, right? Because we were the first, uh, the first line of defense. We were the first industry which, which had to be closed completely. And it, it wasn't that we were ready for it, right? Because you would hear like, okay, one case here, one case there. And then suddenly like it was boom. The one thing amazing is that, you know, we were, we were having all of these meetings. I, I was still traveling. I'd just come back from Charleston Wine and Food Festival and we were having a meeting and then Vivek is like, let's shut it down. Let's shut it before the curve. And one of the biggest reasons was that we wanted to make sure that our entire team, at least because, I mean, you know, five years we had spent like all this time building a team. We had like you know, shy of 300 people. So we had to let go of all of them because we knew everybody was going to do that. So at least let's do it as soon as possible so that these guys, they can apply for unemployment, get whatever benefits they can, right? Uh, Rather than get on the line because if we would have waited any longer, then it would have been a bigger problem for them. So it was an emotionally uh, like crazy couple of weeks because, you know, in a way you feel that you fail, but you can't think of any other like what else could you have done there wasn't a solution yeah there wasn't a solution and the idea was survival so that you know when we come back we at least have a place to give all of them a job so it was it was interesting we took a break for a week because everything was changing the rules were changing the laws were changing everything every day right so we would make a plan in the morning and by the evening we had to scrap the plan because something had changed. It was incredible. I think the biggest learning that we had was that we've got to be ready to pivot at any given minute, not to get comfortable at all. And the biggest thing was that we started with baby steps. We started with just takeouts, right? Like 
we were doing takeouts, we were doing curbside, we were, you know, with four restaurants one night every day. We had a skeletal team, which was like pretty much, you know, the owners and we were rolling up our sleeves and washing dishes and doing whatever, sure, you know, you've got course. to do. Slowly, slowly as I think in Nashville more so, it's it's a little bit more, I feel kind of lucky as opposed to both the coast because right now they are at, you know, 25%, but we've been, you know, at 50% for quite some time. So we we still are working at limited hours. We are making sure that, you know, everything is social distance, like following all the rules. But I think we're doing okay. It's definitely not what 2019 was. It definitely is not what we projected going into 2020, which was supposed to be our best year ever. But hey, we'll take what we get. And I think in terms of, you know, supporting local restaurants, support as much as possible. My big thing is that if you're ordering something, order directly from them. Don't order through a third party platform because the the third party platforms take a really heavy commission. So literally, if you're ordering, if you're ordering through any of these other platforms, the restaurant is not making any money. Just just keep that in mind, right? Absolutely. Call them directly. Yeah, call Perfect. them directly and just, you know, pick it up. And then the other thing is just be kind. Yeah. I can't tell you the number of times it just breaks my heart when somebody is rude or mean. I mean, keep in mind that the servers who are serving you, it's not easy for them. Be kind, be nice, be like, don't stiff them. Like, oh, mercy. They've been out of work for a very long time. Like, just have empathy. That's all. These people are working for you. So don't, don't be mean. Don't be mean. Yes, absolutely. What is your prediction for the restaurant industry? I know here in Austin and also in Nashville, we've lost a lot of iconic restaurants to the pandemic. They just couldn't hang on. And, you know, the profit margin for most restaurants is already razor thin. It's such a hard industry to succeed in, in the best of years. What are you thinking? I mean, it's just a projection and just be your opinion. But as you look forward to kind of the rollout of the consequences of the pandemic and what a long recovery process that is. What do you suspect will be different in the industry, if anything, either capacity wise, or maybe the way in which the restaurant industry functions, the financials? I don't know what, I'm just wondering if you think there'll be some permanent changes here. There definitely will be permanent changes. And I, and, and to me, I think I have two school of thoughts. The first is that I think the way that we dine is going to change. It's going to go towards more of a fast, casual concept as opposed to, I think there will be a few really fine dining places, but fine dining places, I think, are going to be few and far apart, right? Mm, because that does have, the margins are are very, very slim. And it's also that the entire takeout component of food, it's, it's going to be on the rise, no questions about it, right? There are concepts which are like, you know, where you can mail stuff. A lot of people have been cooking at home, which I think is exciting. So I think those are things which are going to happen. But in the end of the day, I think restaurants are going to come out, like all the restaurants who survive are going to come out of this a lot stronger, a lot stronger because of the fact that they have pivoted, they have repivoted, they have figured out how to go around probably one of the worst crises that could have come, you know, been on the hospitality restaurant industry, but also the audience. People are, 
absolutely they want to go they want to hang out with friends they want to go to a restaurant oh i mean i yes. want to go to a communal table and sit down and you know order like everything on the menu and taste it right so people are clamoring for that so i do think that when it does become safe like we are seeing we we are seeing mockingbird does close to between brunch and dinner on saturdays does close to around 400 people because people do want to come up right so so i i do think that in the long run if we can survive it is going to work out in our favor i love that optimistic perspective i love the notion that our restaurants and their owners and staff are going to come out stronger and we as eaters and consumers are going to be happier. We're going to be so so grateful to be there. That's those were always cherished things that we didn't know to cherish. You know the capacity to go into places and gather. And so, oh, I just cannot wait. Oh, please. It's so exciting to just know we're just the beginning of the end. You know, we are there is light on its way. Oh my gosh, I just can't stand. I might not cook for a solid year. I might not. I'm so excited to be a restaurant person again. Okay, Mini, we're going to wrap this up. These are just some quick like off the top of your head questions that I'm asking everybody in the food series. Some of your food network colleagues, everybody has different ideas and answers and it's so fun. Here's one of them. It's just not even a fair question, I admit it, but if you had to, if you had to answer it, if you could only eat one dish for the rest of your life, you've got to pick one. what would it be and then also who makes it best ooh chicken curry that vivek makes or potato and fenugreek that my mom makes oh perfect yes i have said and it might ideas change depending on the day i'm not good at that question but when i rotate through about three or four dishes that i would say i would eat for the rest of my life chicken curry is one of them i have never ever ever been tired of it i don't care how much i eat it i don't care how much i make it never i can't wait for you to come over here and try our food i am going to do that i look forward to it in the aftermath of this okay here's the next one when you are too tired this is a home question when you're at home and i'm not we don't have takeout or restaurant to go to so cancel that as an option you're home people still need to eat but you're just sick of it you're sick of it you're sick of you've had a day you've already done too much cooking for your real life job and you just can't you can't deal What is your go-to meal that is like you kind of phone it in? I probably make an egg burji which is Indian spice scrambled eggs with flatbreads and it's just like simple it's like you know it's like a breakfast burrito or a taco like 7 minutes. Yes. Eggs yeah. are my phone it in ingredient when I cannot even deal. I'm like, well I'll just make a scramble. Let's have migas. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, last question. And I actually ask all my guests this question all the series. I I learned it from a priest that I love and this is her question. And you can answer it however you want. We've it runs the gamut between tender and poignant and like absurd and silly. So you pick. But she asked the question, what is saving your life right now? My family. My family. Just they are just an incredible support system especially the kids like just seeing the way they they live day to day getting to explore or see the world in a completely new naive light they're just such blessings so yeah i think it's my family who saves me 
your kids are at a magical age too, where they're still full of like wonder and innocence. And it is such a wonderful way to experience the world with them in the house. So true. As we wrap it up, do you mind telling my listeners primarily where they can find you, where, when we want to like track with what you're doing in your life, where do you like to be? And then what are, what are you working on right now? Also where we can get your stuff, where we can find your book, everything. Fantastic. So I'm on social media. I'm the most active on Instagram. So if you send me a message, you definitely will get an answer back unless uh, you're trying to piss me off and then I will not engage just just to let you know. Uh, And on all platforms, I am at Manit Chauhan. The book is available on, I mean, everywhere where books are available. So it's, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Tox and Potter. That's where it's available. You can get an update on what we are doing on all our restaurant social media. So we have Chohan Elan Masala House, Mockingbird, Tanso, and Chatable. And then Hop Springs is our brewery. And what else? If you like my earrings, I've got Manith Curated where I sell earrings, etc. And yeah, and what am I working on? I'm working on survival right now. We're working on survival so that we can thrive. I love everything you are putting out into the world. It's just phenomenal and it's exciting and it's delicious and it's fascinating. And I love to watch another woman just absolutely kill it in her industry and grow and try new things and add interesting new lanes into your path. And I just am so excited for you and for whatever's next. I'm just over here cheering you on in every possible way. And so thank you for being so delightful in the world. It's so nice to have a delightful person in the world. Oh, we need it. Thank we you. Need, we need you. We need you to be as wonderful as you are. Thank you for making us happy. And thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Okay, you guys, listen, I cannot recommend enough popping over to the YouTube channel to maybe watch this episode too. This is a really fun one to see. So neat to see her face as we get to talk. So all of our podcasts are both in the audio format or over on YouTube in video format. And so if ever you're interested in watching me talk to my incredible guest, those are always over there for you um, on my channel on YouTube. So She's so neat, you guys. I'm going to link to her cookbook because it is beautiful, beautiful and gorgeous. And as you heard, really interesting and unique. And so follow me, Minnie, everywhere she's at. And I was just, I'm loving this series so much. I wish it was a hundred weeks long. So I'm glad that you are loving it too. Thank you for your awesome feedback on the food series. If you've missed any of them, go back because we've had really, I mean, some of the tip top people in this series, talking to us about how they got to where they are. So thanks for listening. You guys, we're so delighted to serve you. And as always, so happy to bring in these episodes every single week. We just passed our 200th episode, which is crazy. Just crazy. I mean, 30 million downloads, everything's just crazy. So thank you for being an incredible listening community week in and week out. All right, you guys see you next week.